this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a journalist, an author and a broadcaster who's won many awards for her great body of work on social affairs, continuing a family tradition of attempting to eradicate class divides in Britain. Her new book, An Uneasy Inheritance, My Family and Other Radicals, charts how her ancestors grappled with this, as well as looking into how the issue is being dealt with today. Polly Toynbee, welcome to Meet the Writers. Hello. Uh, Such a famous name, not just because of your family, but of course because you have been a campaigning journalist for so long. And of course that does go back to your roots, way back into the past. But I'd like to start really just with your parents and your own upbringing. Tell me about them. My parents were always on the radical side and my father, as a a student at Oxford University before the war, he was the first communist president of the Oxford Union. But like a lot of other communists at that time, he dropped out of the party as soon as the Hitler-Stalin pact happened at the start of the war, but was always on the left, was one of the founders of the campaign for nuclear disarmament. And he was an apocalyptic character who always thought the world was going to come to an end quite soon. So that, for instance, when we travelled on holiday, he always had to carry a large bottle of enough pills to kill us all in case the nuclear bomb dropped. And so when one day we were heading off towards Wales, he had to turn around the car and go back because he'd left the bottle behind. So he always feared the end of the world. I mean, later on in his life, he feared another apocalypse, which was environmental. And so he set up a commune, agricultural commune, in which everybody would be self-sustaining, grow their own cabbages. It was a disaster. It was filled up with hippies who just arrived and wanted to chant and sing mantras and were not much interested in digging. And in the end, the whole thing fell apart catastrophically, as some of us had suspected it would, but causing a lot of misery to his family on the way. Mm, And your mother? My mother came from a quite grand background. She'd been a debutante, the last debutante before the war, which she'd hated, very much not her world. She was actually very left-wing herself, married my disreputable father, who was very much not the sort of person a debutante should be expected to marry. And they lived together for at least a decade, but it was a marriage destined to fail. My father was very drunk, very wild, very difficult, utterly charming, utterly fascinating but when drunk, a nightmare. Mm. And of course, this upbringing, though, obviously lit this, this campaigning fuse within you. Well, my family, going back as many generations as I can find, have always been progressives on the left. I'm going back to my great-grandfather, who was the Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford University, Gilbert Murray. He was a staunch vegetarian and temperance, no drink, but also passionately anti empire, anti-colonial. He was passionately pro-Irish home rule, against capital punishment, all sorts of progressive causes that at the time he felt he was losing and losing and losing again in the same way that people on the left side of politics tend to lose elections more often than to the Conservatives. So I think it was inbred in all of us, really, because then their children were very much the left and my father... It was inconceivable that any of us would have been pro-conservative. We were brought up with the Conservatives to be the enemy. I mean, some of them were communists, some of them social democrats, some of them socialists. 
but all of them anti-Tory. And so for you, I mean, growing up in this environment, I know you went to Oxford, but that was not at all expected, was it? No, I was... I sort of... Black sheep of the family, really. I threw away every educational advantage. I come from this hyper-educated family full of professors of one thing or another. My father was, my stepfather was professor of philosophy. My great-aunt was professor of archaeology at Cambridge. All of them were. My grandfather was a professor. My great-grandfather was a professor. Perhaps it was the pressure of academic pressure on that that made me just fail, fail and fail again. Hated school, resisted school, resented it. Failed my 11 plus at 11, got said to a boarding school as a punishment, came out of expensive boarding school with only four O-levels and no maths. Not until I got to a comprehensive school for the sixth form did one teacher pick me up and say, look, I think there's something in here. I think I could get her an Oxford scholarship. And my goodness, he did. He gave me extra teaching, gave me all his own passions for Dr Johnson, for Jacobean drama, for all kinds of things. And I did end up, to the astonishment of my family, getting a scholarship to Oxford. Although you didn't finish, but that's because you actually succeeded in in other things. I didn't. I I wrote a novel which came out the first time I was in Oxford and then I did some journalism from there. But I was very unhappy there. It didn't suit me at all. It didn't really help that my very distinguished great-aunts used to come trotting down the road every week and discuss with my tutors how I was getting on. This was oppressive and a number of other reasons why I was not happy and I quit. It was 1966. It was the sort of time people did drop out of university. I'm thoroughly ashamed of it now. I think of the opportunities that due to my middle-class background I had so many opportunities and I threw them away with gay abandon because I could afford to. I was always going to land on my feet. Mm. Unlike a working-class child who maybe gets one chance at school and if they fail, they've had it. Now, before you went to Oxford, you were sent off to Africa, to various parts of Africa, including Rhodesia, and this was for amnesty in the, in the early days. It was 1966. It was just after Ian Smith in Rhodesia had declared a unilateral declaration of independence. At a time right across Africa, countries were being liberated. He wanted liberation, but only for the whites. He wanted to be another South Africa. And I was sent out to work in my gap year between school and university to work for Amnesty in Rhodesia to try and to help the people who'd been in prison. There were very large camps full of prisoners who mostly Africans, some white, mostly Africans, who were opposing the Smith regime. It was the beginning of what was later to become the Bush War, which was very ferocious and killed huge numbers of Africans before they finally got their independence. But, I mean, I arrived there useless, completely ignorant, knowing nothing about anything. There was nobody else there because the previous people from Amnesty had been thrown out. And I had to work out for myself what to do with large amount of money sitting in the bank there and all the records of who was in prison and how to get money to the families of people who needed it and to get the books and education courses to the people in prison who needed it. It was quite a responsibility for somebody who was only, was only what, 18, 19. Too much responsibility, not the sort of thing that I should have been entrusted with. But I did the best I could until I too got thrown out and was told I was persona non grata and could never return. 
Mm, an honour we share. <laughs> <laughs> the country may have changed its name, but uh, that kind of thing still goes on. Well, didn't we learn a lot of political lessons from that? Because after that, Mugabe took over and a lot of people, myself and most of the liberal people and Africans, always thought this is the start of a great new beginning. And it was a hugely optimistic moment for Rhodesia then Zimbabwe. And then all that came crashing down too. So I learned yeah. a lot of political lessons. After Oxford, you've got this book, it's doing quite well. Is that when you go into journalism? Well, I go into journalism really sort of by mistake. I'd done some journalism and I heard there was a, a temporary job going for somebody who was way ill at the Observer. So I took a job for a few weeks. And when she came back, she said, oh, I wanted an assistant and kept hold on me, which was great. But I wasn't really wanting to be a journalist. I thought I was going to be George Eliot. I thought I was going to write a modern middle march. But once I got into journalism, I became completely captivated by the nature of reporting. And I realised that what you find out about what's going on in the real world, what you can ask people about their lives, their experience, their background, their stories, is so much more fascinating than anything I could have invented in a novel. And I think I'm a much better reporter than I ever would have been novelist. Mm. So I stuck with that. And A Working Life, then, was your next book. And this was a huge work. And I, I mean, I think it really changed things within this country. And it meant you went out and experienced all these different jobs. Well, I was just starting out in journalism and I realised I knew nothing about the country I was supposed to be reporting on. What did I know? Middle class girl had been to Oxford, nothing. So I took time off from the news desk and went off and took jobs around the country. I worked in a car parts factory in Birmingham, Lucas's, they've all gone now, a cake packing factory. I worked in a hospital. I joined the Women's Army for a bit to describe not poverty, but what ordinary manual work was like, the standard of living that you can achieve on an ordinary working man or woman's wage and how utterly dreary and deadening a lot of those jobs can be and how badly a lot of people are treated in those jobs. Mm. So I, for me, it was an important exploration. And when I went back to the news desk again, it was in the 1970s when strikes and industrial unrest were very much the main news story. I was much better equipped to understand what I was reporting. Mm. And many, many more books came after that. And of course, your journalism too. I mean, very, very well known for, for your work in The Guardian. You also went off and did some work at the BBC. I did. I worked for seven years as social affairs editor at the BBC, which was fascinating, very different. You have a lovely lot of space in a rather niche newspaper such as the Guardian or the Observer. You have plenty of space to say a lot to rather few people. On the other hand, if you are broadcasting on the main news bulletins of the day on BBC television, you can say very little. The words are very few, but they really matter because probably most people, that's the only information they're going to get about that story that day. So you learn how to condense, how to write really tightly. As you know, broadcasting, it's about three words a second. When you do a piece to camera, if you're lucky, 20 seconds, it's maybe three sentences and you've got to make them really tell. You've got to leave people with an impression of what matters that day on that story. So that was a very good discipline, praising, mm -hmm. cutting down, reducing things to their essence. But it was a great relief to go back to newspapers and be able to stretch out again. <laughs> also to say what you think, because at the BBC you're 
treading along a tightrope. As an editor, you can make judgments and assessments, but you've got to be very careful that there's a fine line between bias and judgment. Mm-hmm. And of course, you were in a unique position to observe social affairs in this country, particularly from that first book, because you then, much later, write a second where you basically update it. And I wonder how much has changed between the two. Well, that's what I wanted to find out. It was over 30 years later, Labour were in power, they'd introduced a minimum wage. And I thought, right, well, what's happened? and how much difference has this made? And this time I did it in a much more disciplined way. I took a flat in a very run-down council estate, not far from where I live. I live at the posh end of Clapham. This was the unposh end, where they were doing up the block so they could let it out, the flat out to me for a bit. And I took whatever jobs I could get from the local job centre, minimum wage jobs, ones that I could reach mostly on foot because you can't afford the tube if you're only earning the minimum wage. And I took jobs as a dinner lady, as a, a care worker in a care home, in a nursery, in a cake packing factory and back in the hospital where I'd worked before. It was a piece of luck that I got. It had been rebuilt by then, but nevertheless, same grade of job. This time I was a porter. Last time I'd been an auxiliary. Same grade. And this was the real shock of this book. When I took my payslip from this time and payslip from 30 years before and I took them to the Institute of Fiscal Studies and said now tell me what's happened to my pay in this time they said it's fallen back by nearly 30 percent and that was the sudden awakening moment for me because I'd written about inequality and how it had got so much worse since the 1980s how outsourcing of work to agencies and other companies meant that they were no longer unionized and pay was falling back but I hadn't realized it was so far, so much. And writing about inequality in the abstract is very different to suddenly realising what's happened to your own pay, what would have happened if I was someone in one of those jobs. Mm. So um, I think that doing things oneself is often a way of finding out things you wouldn't necessarily otherwise. Mm, and, And just so commendable to actually get out there and experience it, particularly as you point out, you didn't have to and neither did your ancestors. And I think perhaps we should we should go back and have a look now at at what's what's actually in your new book, because it is a memoir of of a sort. But it's also this wonderful reflection on your on your various ancestors and and an examination really of of how to do good when you're in a privileged position. And you start off talking about Arnold. Arnold Toynbee, my grandfather, was a famous historian, extremely fashionable in the sort of 40s and and 50s, and so much so that he got taken up tremendously by the Americans and by the Japanese. He was on the front cover of Time magazine. He wrote 12 volumes of A Study of History. He had a theory of what makes civilizations rise and fall, of challenge and response, as he called it, that they respond to challenges and rise, but their fall is almost always their own fault in Internal collapse and corruption. You know, we're used to given and looking at the Roman Empire, but all of empires somehow implode through their own loss of nerve or corruption. It's a fascinating survey, very much not read now, rather unfashionable to have a world-encompassing view of that rather grandiose kind. But in its time, it was very influential. He was a tremendous liberal and optimist and believer in internationalism and believer that people would prevail, first of all, in the League of Nations and then in the United Nations. He kept hoping that somehow uh, civilizations would see sense and stop fighting each other, but it didn't happen. No, no. I wonder when you first became aware of social divides. 
I think everybody becomes aware of social difference. If you stop anybody in the street and ask them, ask any relation or friend or neighbour, what's the first moment or moment you can remember when you suddenly became aware of either being too posh or not posh enough? When something came up and was a social embarrassment for one reason or another, everybody has a story to tell. And certainly as a child, I spent half my life in Suffolk. My parents were separated by then with my father. And although he didn't have much money, he didn't even have electricity in his house, nevertheless, we were posh folk playing with working class children down the road in the council houses. And it sort of ended in disaster when the mother decided that I was too posh and was somehow exploiting her, her little girl. And, you know, you, you feel it, and I felt it strongly. Um, it's a very poignant story. Won't you tell us what happened? OK, I'll tell you what happened. We were playing in an orange box cart with wheels, wheeling up and down, taking turns to be the horse pulling it along, and the rider sitting in the box, waving a whip in the air. And her mother came out of the house when I was sitting in the box and shouting, giddy up, giddy up, get a move on. And um, the mother came out and shouted at me, who do you think you are? Get out immediately, go away and never come back here. How dare you have my daughter pulling you along? And Maureen, my friend, was too afraid of her mother to say, look, actually, we were taking it in turns. And so I went away very upset, feeling it was very unfair. But some bit of me knew perfectly well what this was about. It was about her family feeling aggrieved at our family, feeling that they were being looked down on. And as indeed people are in life, and it was a true experience for her, and she resented me. Mm. Going back to your ancestors, tell us about Harry. He was your great-grandfather. I knew nothing about him until I started research. I thought I knew everything about my family because they all wrote books and, and left huge amounts of information about themselves, but I didn't know about Arnold Toynbee's father, my great-grandfather, who was called Harry Toynbee. I knew he'd had a mental breakdown and it had left his wife and his three children, Arnold and his two sisters, absolutely impoverished and they'd had to, you know, had a life of extreme restriction and they all had to get scholarships to get into schools and universities. What I didn't know was that he had had a mental breakdown and was put into a mental hospital, a good one actually, but locked up for 40 years. He didn't die for 40 years. And I went to look at his records and they were appalling. He was shrunken, catatonic, could hardly move, attacked anybody who came near him, was full of self-loathing and self-disgust and just kept saying over and over again, silly old fool, I'm a worthless man. And nobody could approach him. I took those notes to a senior psychiatrist who said, this is extraordinary, there would be no case like that these days. These days drugs would stop people being in quite such an extreme situation. But that poor man lived in that state of despair for 40 years. And what had projected him into it was his work in a very famous Royal Commission on the Poor Law, which was supposed to decide whether or not to keep workhouses going where the poor were put and given barely enough to eat and were expected to work for their living, or whether we should move to a sort of social security system where people got a bit of money paid out by the parish. And my grandfather, Harry, worked on that commission, but he joined Beatrice Webb and the minority of the commission saying, of course, we should abolish workhouses. They're appalling places and very expensive to run. And as a result, he lost his job working for the main part of that commission, who were the officials, much more the official side, saying we should keep workhouses going because otherwise it's a moral hazard. If you give people money, people will just take benefits. And I think that 
division in him, losing his job, unable any longer to keep his family, is probably what drove him mad. Mm. But, you know, he had spent his life trying to do good, and it broke him in the end. I mean, all my family were would-be-goods. Some of their stories were quite comical in the efforts that they made, and this one was a tragic one. Mm. You had some terribly grand relatives too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My great-great-grandmother was the Countess of Carlisle. She was known as the Red Countess, and she owned Castle Howard, a great Vanborough palace in Yorkshire, used for Bridgerton and other films, and Brideshead revisited. But she was very much on the left. She was, she was liberal before the days of the Labour Party, passionately pro-Irish home rule, passionately anti-colonial, and she was also ferociously temperance, and she smashed all the bottles of wine in the Castle Howard cellar and closed all the pubs on her estates. She was very ferocious, had 11 children, fell out with all of them, but a great campaigner for women's rights, women's suffrage, and all of that. So, uh, yes, she was a sort of upper-class version of liberalism, leftism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you write about how who you marry is really important and really how the English aristocracy has been bolstered by marrying into what my mother would have called trade. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. I mean, the English aristocracy has always been refreshed by people from brewing families or, uh, you know, mining families or whatever. There's been, no, there's been very little snobbery. If you've got enough money, you can buy your way up the social class, certainly. But um, it really went the other way from her because her, the Red Countess's daughter, Mary, married my grandfather, who was very distinguished, a distinguished professor, but he certainly wasn't upper class. And in terms of figuring out how this then works for our future, I mean, you've you've written a lot. For instance, I'm very interested in your book, The Lost Decade, that's 2010 to 2020. And what lies ahead for Britain was the question in, in that title. And I wonder how much class and the way we've developed within that decade has to do with this. It certainly got much worse in the last decade in that the years of austerity since 2010 have stripped out a huge amount of our public services that people rely on, but also cut back benefits enormously. We have almost the lowest benefits of anybody in Europe, certainly in Western Europe, far less. So that people with least, people on very low incomes, trying to bring up families on very meagre wages, have a sub survivable standard of living and increasingly the things happened in the last 10 years growth of food banks where people in work are having to go and get food from food banks every week which is very shocking I mean, I think I've been looking back at my ancestry saying they believed in progress. They believed in the inevitability that things would get better. You know, more people would get the vote, more people would succeed, more people would have educational opportunities. And that's largely been true. There's a health service, there's a, a social security system, there is universal education, increasingly universities. And so everything did get more equal right up till more or less the end of the 1970s. That was the most equal time in our history. But the 1980s saw everything go into reverse. That was Mrs Thatcher. It was enormous cuts to benefits and to public services and a huge explosion of wealth at the top, what was called the Big Bang, where people in the cities, chief executives who used to earn 10 or 15 times their average workers' wage suddenly started earning 200 times their average, which is what happens now if you look at the top 100 FTSE 100 CEOs earning astronomical sums that were unheard of until the 1980s. 
so that we have gone backwards since then in terms of greater equality, and the last 10 years particularly, with you know, much higher levels of poverty. I mean, Labour did well in its time in office in that it managed to have a million fewer children in poverty, a million fewer pensioners in poverty, and it's gone backwards very much since 2010. I mean, it's been hard economic times for everybody, but this country has done notably worse and has most notably become more unequal than most of equivalent Western European countries. I mean, only America is worse than us in terms of inequality. Now, you had a brief, I'm going to call it, flirtation with politics yourself. Yes. It was at a time in the early 80s when Mrs Thatcher was extremely unpopular and her policies very extreme and her budgets very extreme. And on the Labour side, they did what Labour often does out of power, which is to choose an unelectable leader, Michael Foote, of the quite far left. And between these two extremes, we knew that most people didn't want to have to make an impossible choice between them. And so a number of us broke away from the Labour Party and formed the Social Democratic Party, which did hugely well for a while. But under our electoral system, it's almost impossible for a third party to break through. In the end, when it comes to voting, people hold their nose and they vote against the party they hate most and they're most afraid of winning. And the party in the middle gets squashed. And that's what happened to us. Mm. And I think it's a lesson that unless we change our electoral system to something closer to a lot of European countries, we are always caught in the vice of a choice. I mean, last time, the impossible choice was between... Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn. And this was a ludicrous choice, but that's what people had to choose between. Mm. And what will happen next, do you think? Well, I think it looks almost certain that Labour will win the next election. I mean, they're 20 points ahead and the Conservatives are very, very unpopular. The cost of living crisis has hit people very hard. Again, this country has done worse and it's it's harsher here than France, Germany, other equivalent countries. And huge resentment of what's happened to mortgages, what's happened to the price of food and what's happened to the health service, which has these 7.4 million people waiting on waiting lists, unheard of, unprecedented. And I think there's a really passionate commitment to the health service and people regard that as something of a barometer of how a government is treating its public services. So I think it's very likely Labour will win. Whether Labour will dare change the voting system, I don't know. Huge pressure within the party for them to do that, to make sure we have a fairer voting system which allows more parties to enter the political sphere but I don't know how brave Labour will be. I hope for the best. I always live in hope. <laughs> and would you be tempted back into politics yourself? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. The thing that journalists need to remember, particularly people who write like me about politics and social affairs, is that we have a very comfortable life. We sit there telling all of them what to do and how to do it better and what they shouldn't do, wagging our finger at them. Politicians have a much harder life. They don't last very long. If they're in office for a few years in the cabinet, they're very lucky. If they are in the cabinet, if they have much influence on what goes on, they're part of a collective, they're very lucky. If they can point to anything at the end of their life that made a difference... Maybe. And at the same time, they have to look after their constituencies and they are hated and detested by almost everybody. It's very odd that we worship democracy, but we hate the people who practice it. <laughs> it's, <very laughs> it's peculiar. <laughs> and so it's much cushier life being a journalist, but I think we should have 
a modicum of humility about how we treat politicians. I mean, A Cushy Life is essentially at the nub of this book. It's a wonderful book and I should just tell listeners that there are so many great stories in here, as you say, ranging from the very funny to the utterly tragic. But the question is that some people, and indeed your family, have been tremendously privileged within the grand scheme of things. And so how do we live a meaningful life trying to do good without being patronising, without feeling guilt, or indeed without being branded champagne socialists? Well, that's what the book's about, what I was trying to explore, because I was realising how much, how often I sort of writhe with embarrassment at my middle classness. I mean, listen to my voice, you can hear it, can't you? (laughs) Um, And realising it needed to be explored, and I needed to look sometimes in quite a comic way back at the various ways my members of my family had coped with it always the sense of living comfortably with an uncomfortable conscience always the sense of being a bit embarrassed I mean you know David Cameron the Prime Minister hurled across the floor of the House of Commons to his opposition leader Ed Miliband you are a champagne socialist and people call us hypocrites we know if you if you care so much about the poor why don't you give everything away so it leaves you writhing with uncertainty but I hope at the end of this book people who are themselves middle class can see what matters is what you do and doing your best and trying the best you can to make things better for other people to make things better for society and getting yourself tangled up in agonies of guilt doesn't help anybody so you might as well just get on with it excellent place to end it polly thank you so much thank you an uneasy inheritance my family and other radicals is by polly toynbee it's published by atlantic books and it's out now You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Steph Chungu and Tamsin Howard. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Listening.